0: Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning in. Now we want to hear from you and give you something in return. Rate this show or any other Mercatus podcast on Apple Podcasts, including the Mercatus Policy Download, Conversations with Tyler, the Hayek Program Podcast, or Macro Musings, and we'll select 50 people to get a signed copy of Tyler Cowan's latest book, Stubborn Attachments, before it hits bookstores on October 16th. Just visit Mercatus.org slash contest and give us your info after you submit your review so we can reach you. That's Mercatus.org slash contest from now until October 1st. Thanks, and on to the show.
1: does a particular occupation seem to be of the sort that could drastically harm someone if the interaction didn't go as planned? And ultimately, I think what we're trying to do is drive that as data-driven away as possible. So one of our initiatives in Illinois, which what we call our Sunrise Proposal, if you think that you've got a good idea for licensure, we think that the legislature should put a process in place that would allow for a review of these particular questions before the license is enacted, and it would look at benefits and harms of licensing a particular profession. So ultimately, I think there is a certain bit of common sense, but we are trying to meld common sense with real data-driven analysis.
0: Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. I'm happy to be joined for my favorite segment, What's on Tap, with co-host Kate Delanois. Kate, how are you today? Doing well. How's it going? I am living the dream as always, and in large part because I am pleased to be able to provide Manor Hill Brewing's Grisette, a farmhouse ale. So we can talk more about that in a minute. But while I go ahead and pour that, why don't you let me know what's on tap at Mercatus?
2: Definitely. So we've got a brand new paper out this week from our very own Laura Jones and James Broll. And it's looking at regulatory reform in British Columbia and what lessons the United States could be learning from that. Because British Columbia is one of the few places in the world that's actually had successful regulatory reform where they took a look at what's working, what's not, cut out the bad, kept the good. And so it's a a really interesting process. And there's a lot, I think, that both federally and the states can learn
0: And longtime listeners may remember we had Laura on a previous episode of the show along with Patrick McLaughlin, who's our kind of in-house regulatory expert. So definitely recommend, if you're interested in the paper, checking out that episode as well.
2: That's right. And speaking of previous podcast guests, Brian Knight, who I know has been on at least a couple episodes, is testifying today, September 18th, before the Senate Banking Committee. So that's happening at 10 a.m. And he's talking about banking, non-banking, fintech and innovation. So just ways people can you know, do new things like sending money to loved ones or those in need. Should be an interesting testimony and talking a little bit, I think, too, about like the Treasury report that was released not that long ago.
0: Right. Yeah. For our financial regulatory audience who have been following these reports, Treasury's come out with several. And the most recent one covers a lot of fintech issues. So I think there will be a lot of interest at the testimony today.
2: Definitely. So, yeah, that's at 10 a.m. today. And you can also check it out on the Senate Banking website. If you don't happen to catch it live, they'll post the video. And then finally, I just wanted to let all of our listeners know that Emergent Ventures, which they heard about a few weeks ago when Tyler was on the podcast talking about it, applications are now open. So you can go to Mercatus.org backslash Emergent Ventures. And if you've got a moonshot idea, go ahead and submit it. We're taking applications on a rolling basis. So as good ideas come in, you know, we're moving forward on them. So get them in as soon as possible.
0: And while my goal was not necessarily today to spend the entire time promoting old podcast episodes, I will say that we had a great conversation with Tyler. We released kind of a 10-minute special episode about Emergent Ventures. So for those interested, considering applying, want to learn more, definitely recommend you check out that conversation and learn about the project. Now, I would like to learn from you your thoughts on the beer.
2: The beer is good. It's it's not as complex as I might have expected a farmhouse ale to be, but I like it. It's, it's great. Sweater weather beer. It's not quite a pumpkin ale, but I, I'm going to assume those are coming. So I'm going to give this one a 3.25.
0: I am holding off on the pumpkin beers for now. It's September and I refuse to jump into the pumpkin craze. A little more positive on this than you are. I'm going to go 3.75 out of 5.
2: Sounds great.
0: I hope you'll stick around. We've got a great conversation coming up. We're talking about Illinois and occupational licensing reform. So we have some regulators from the state of Illinois, as well as Matt Mitchell, who's going to be talking about the issue from an economic perspective. The perfect panel to discuss this issue that I think is of interest to a lot of people across the nation, obviously to Illinois, but there are lessons there for other states as well. So a great conversation coming up just in a minute.
2: Thanks for having me, Chad. Cheers. Cheers.
0: Over the past few years, Illinois has passed multiple reforms regarding occupational licensing. Illinois' reform efforts are part of a broader national movement to re-examine the ways in which we license certain professions. In other words, how state governments decide who's allowed to work in what jobs. Here to discuss that, I'm very pleased to welcome the perfect panel for the show for today's topic. First, we have Secretary Brian Schneider from the Illinois Department of Financial and Professional Regulation. Thanks for visiting us in D.C., Secretary. I'm glad to be here. From the same department, we're also joined by the director of the Professional Regulation Division, Jessica Baer. Glad you could join us, Jessica.
3: Very happy to be here.
0: And last but certainly not least, we're lucky enough to have Matt Mitchell, who directs our research program on government-granted privilege here at Mercatus. Thanks for taking the time to chat with us, Matt.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So I'm going to start out with a really general question, because I just threw out a term occupational licensing. And some of our audience will be very familiar with that from the work here at Mercatus, and others have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about. So it was kind of a maybe a jump ball question to get us started. What the heck is occupational licensing? What are these laws? What are they regulations? And what are we really talking about today?
1: I think one way to think about occupational licensure most broadly is uh, occupational licensure is any anytime you need the permission of the government to be able to conduct the business or profession that you've chosen to earn your living with. I think there's also a sense now, as, as we've come to use it, one might start to distinguish between more professional licensure and occupational licensure. So the, learned, the great learned professions, medicine and law and accounting, there seems to be a fairly broad consensus that licensure is appropriate for those professions, But as we've been learning at the department over the past several years, when you get down into some of the less skilled professions, the licensure is really relating to the occupation itself and not so much to the skill set that the individual has. So that's how we've begun sort of differentiating occupational licensure among all the license types that we issue.
4: I think one thing that's helpful in thinking about this issue is to put it in perspective of, of what's happened over time. So in the 1950s, 5% of the American workforce needed a license in order to practice their profession. That's grown fivefold in the decades since. Uh, And it's also moved far beyond professions that we typically think of as uh, involving the public's health or safety. So now in many states, you need a license in order to be a, um, actually 50 states, you need a license in order to be a cosmetologist, in order to be a barber. In many states, you need a license in order to be a hairdresser or um, in order to braid hair or to do eyebrow threading. Um, In some states, you need a license in order to be a tour guide. In some states, you need a license in order to be an interior decorator. I always like to point out that throw pillows are rarely actually thrown by interior (laughs) decorators. (laughs) Um, So, you know, in a lot of these cases, the the health and safety concerns or arguments are just that it's pretty implausible that the public is in danger.
3: Kind of piggybacking off of that is that each... You, know, you touched on this, but each state regulates differently. And we as regulators don't have authority to say we think that this is necessary to regulate or not necessary to regulate. That really is left up to the General Assembly in each individual state to determine what professions they think you know, ideally are looking at what would impact the public safety if it went unregulated, and then also what the requirements are. So what you're finding is even professions that are cosmetology is a really good example regulated across all 50 states. All 50 states regulate that differently. So what you require to be a cosmetologist in New York might be very different than what you need in Iowa, mm-hmm. which presents some interstate mobility issues.
4: I think the other thing that's interesting to, to uh, point out is the mismatch between the perception of public safety and the level of regulation. So cosmetologists, for example, on average, they are required to have ten times more days of work and training and experience than emergency medical technicians. Um, so that's you know a, a significantly higher burden and higher barrier for people to pass in order to get into this field. And I you know my perception is that cosmetology involves uh, significantly less public risk than you know an emergency medical technician. I think that's most people's perceptions too.
0: Matt, I think you mentioned sort of this issue over time. And I think I sort of alluded to this in the introduction where there is – it seems like there's some sort of national movement going on. People are re-examining these laws. I think it was – just within the last couple of weeks, that former Vice President Joe Biden gave a speech, uh, and he discussed some of Maryland occupational licensing laws specifically, and there were audible gasps. You could you could tell from the audience when he gave some of those numbers. Um, so I'm kind of curious if you all can maybe give me and our listeners some historical context, maybe. You know, where where did these laws come from? Matt, you mentioned that a little bit, um, and then I don't know, uh, Secretary and Jessica, if you have some. Illinois-specific examples. But historically, how have we looked at these laws? And then how is that changing? Where's the trend going?
1: Well, historically, uh, it is a historical question, and I'm not a historian. But my my research would indicate that initially licensure was predicated on an honest desire to maintain Uh, the health and safety of the population. So you wanted doctors and nurses and pharmacists to have a certain demonstrated level of training and competence, and that was predicated on the seemingly reasonable belief that those individuals would be better able to protect the health and safety of the population. So the historical foundation seems sound to me, uh, but what we've observed is just an ever-increasing desire of people in certain occupations to be able to get official state sanction even though you can't establish any connection to health or safety. To some extent, I think it makes people feel more prestigious to have a license. I happen to be a licensed attorney, and I admit there's, there's something about that notion that I've satisfied the state of Illinois that I can adequately practice law. But I think that motivates certain groups. I think there's a a notion that uh, we can get certain types of benefits if we're licensed. So we might be able to get paid more readily uh, from insurers or other groups if we have that sort of designation. And I think there's an increasing awareness that if we can make it more difficult for people to do a particular type of occupation, uh, that's good for me as someone that would have that license. So I, I, I do think there's a growing awareness that licensure does freeze out competition, and, and that that's good for the people in the club, but not necessarily uh, for consumers. And people like Jessica and I certainly are trying to look at consumers' welfare writ broadly. Are they getting safe and sound services. But also, are they getting services? Are services available for people to choose from? And I think that's the particular consumer interest that gets lost very quickly in these discussions because no one's really representing the consumers.
3: Two points based off of that is I think the secretary touched on this, but the trend when occupational licensing first began is that professions did not want to be regulated. So you look at the first kind of U.S. Supreme Court case that dealt with this. I believe it was doctors who said, I don't want state supervision. I don't want oversight. And you have the state saying, this is a state issue. We want to protect our citizens. We want to make sure that you are safe to practice. And the U.S. Supreme Court said that is within your right state to make sure that practitioners are safe. I think the shift really recently has been what the secretary was talking about, is that no longer do we have groups coming to say, we want to make sure that these doctors are safe to practice. They're saying, we want you to license us. So as opposed to there being some discernible harm um, that predicated the need for a license, we just have groups that come and say, well, we just want a license. And so then the conversation really shifts from what is the harm to we offer this great benefit? And while a lot of groups are offering great benefits to the public, it doesn't necessarily mean that you they pose such a risk of harm that they would need to be regulated. Um, one point, one interesting fact I kind of read recently was I think there was a Morris Kleiner study that looked at Louisiana is the only state that licensed florists, and so they looked at the comparison of. Louisiana versus Texas. And, you know, obviously, I think you would be very hard-pressed to find any sort of harm from doing floral arrangements incorrectly, but, <laughs> you know, I could be wrong. Um, but w- what they found is that there also wasn't a discernible difference in quality. They,
4: they actually entered, they went around and they bought uh, flowers yep. in the two states, and then they entered them in contests Oh, that's right. great. Uh, to see if the uh, flowers from the licensed state had any greater uh, propensity to win the yeah. contest, and they found uh, no
3: <laughs> but the one the one area that they did find a huge difference in was the cost. so in Louisiana, the cost to go to a florist and get a floral arrangement was much higher than when you're looking at Texas. So going back to what are the consumer protection aspect of is that is that you're you're limiting consumer choice you're also likely artificially inflating prices where there really is no public benefit on the opposite side.
4: And I think that's worth talking about a little bit is, um, okay, so what's the economics of this issue? So a lot of people have this idea that licensure, surely it must increase quality because in order that the state asks a bunch of questions of licensed aspiring professionals that you have to study for the exam, you may have to spend time in uh, apprenticing or in, in school, surely some of that imparts some you know, knowledge to the uh, aspiring licensees that makes them better. Uh, and I think that's a fine argument. The problem is that there's another really fine argument, which is that when you limit supply, uh, you tend to reduce quality. We know that competition um, is itself one of the best guarantors of quality. So you have these two uh, essentially good stories competing against one another. So we have to turn to the data to see what's the actual effect. So about two dozen studies have been conducted on this issue, and a majority of them, over 60%, basically find no statistically significant effect of licensure one way or the other. Um, The next category is the studies that find that licensure um, actually decreases quality. Um, It's about 20%. And then um, below that is you know, the smallest category is the number of studies that find that increases quality. So the, to me, I look at the balance of evidence suggests just essentially what theory um, says, which is eh, the two effects roughly cancel each other out. If anything, there's a little bit of evidence that licensure is more likely to harm quality than to increase quality. Now, okay, that, that, what's the other... What are the other economic factors here? Another prediction when you shift a supply curve to the left or you restrain um, supply curves is that you will increase price. And on that, according to the Obama administration, they did a a similar survey. They said it's quote quote unquote unequivocal. Uh, Licensure increases prices. And it's in a range of about uh, 16 to 20 percent.
0: So it sounds like we're we're running the risk whenever we engage in in this kind of policy making occupational professional licensing of you know I think someone said freezing out competition reducing quality raising prices but on the, on the other hand, Secretary, as you mentioned before, there may be sort of situations where we're concerned about you know, health and safety, that sort of thing. So let's assume that there are these different categories, right, that there are some of these policies out there that do more harm than good and others that do more good than harm. How do we distinguish? And you know, maybe you guys can approach this as, as scholars, as policymakers, whatever hat you want to wear. How do we distinguish between maybe a reasonable provision – that says, okay, we need a minimum level of competence to assure safety and health of the public, maybe to respond to a specific market failure, and then what's the difference between that and then a harmful provision that's maybe entirely designed just to sort of protect the already licensed industry or group?
3: Well,
1: I can. I'm certainly willing to start the conversation. I don't, you know, we call it the medical cluster. I don't think there's a, a lot of question about, um, you know, our our high performing professionals, uh, nurses, doctors, pharmacists. I don't think there's any serious question that there is a need to license there to make sure that these people with whom some of our most important decisions are vested uh, know what they're doing and that there's a mechanism to evaluate their competence. To some extent, I think there's a little bit of common sense um, and you know, does 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 a particular occupation seem to be of the sort that could drastically harm someone uh, if if the interaction didn't go as planned? Uh, and and ultimately, I think what we're trying to do is drive that to as data driven a way as possible. So one of our initiatives in Illinois, which Jessica I think would be best able to expound upon, is what we call our 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 sunrise proposal. Uh, so if you think that you've got a good idea for licensure, we think that the legislature should have a put a process in place that would allow for a review of these particular questions before the license is enacted. And it would look at benefits and harms of licensing a particular profession. So ultimately, I think there is a certain bit of common sense, but we are trying to Meld common sense with real data-driven analysis, and maybe Jessica can explain what we've been trying to do there.
3: Yeah, again, it's a, a what we have ended up seeing recently is that you have a group who wants to get a license, and all they have to do is find, you know, a senator or a representative to run a bill, and then. Oftentimes what will happen is that bill will get called in committee and you will have people sit up at a committee desk and say how wonderful this profession is and how much they need to be licensed. But really who you're not hearing from is come January 1, when that bill becomes law, who can no longer practice that profession without now coming to get government authorization and presenting us with a bunch of forms and documentation and paperwork that may be still completely safe to practice and Those voices aren't necessarily heard. And that can be for a number of reasons. Some of them don't even know that the legislation is being run or passed. And so, what this sunrise provision would really do is institutionalize that process of saying, when you get a profession that wants to be licensed, here's a very common sense. It would basically take a year to do a study to say, here are the costs, here are the benefits, this is what other states have done, this is what regulation would look like, this is what an appropriate level of regulation would look like. So there's other things other than licensing that might be appropriate. And other states have done this very effectively. So we really looked at Colorado, I believe Vermont, Washington State. They have very similar processes in place, and I have found great success in utilizing this service. And regardless of what the study comes back and says, the General Assembly in Illinois still has a right to pass a bill, even if the study says that it doesn't look like it's necessary to protect the public. So it's just really a legislative tool. It's a, it's a tool for legislators to be able to look to something that is um, objective and say, this is this is appropriate or this is not appropriate and how how a profession should be regulated.
4: Jessica, when you talk about the the people that aren't at the table, right, it's important to point out, uh, first of all, consumers are among those people who are o- almost never at the table. I've testified in a number of states on occupational licensure, and usually it's several deep, the people who want to keep licenses, and they are always members of the licensed profession. That's a pretty good empirical piece of data that it's probably protecting the existing industry. You almost never hear from consumers. But the other thing to point out is that there is systematic trends in terms of who tends to be harmed by licensure. So uh, military spouses are much more likely to be in licensed professions than the general population, and they're much more likely to move, necessitating a new license when they move to a new location. Immigrants are often have a harder time obtaining licenses because of requirements like English proficiency or residency requirements. You also tend to see those with prior convictions or even any experience in the, in, uh, the criminal justice system, even if they weren't convicted, but they were, say, arrested, um, often licensure is a barrier to entry for them. So there's stories, for example, of uh, states spending thousands of dollars training inmates to practice a certain profession, they then get out of jail, go get a license, and another state agency denies them a license because they have a previous conviction. Well, if I could
1: interject on that point, our experience in Illinois is just like what you described. Our Department of Corrections operates cosmetology and barber schools at some of our correctional institutions. They pay for that. They pay to offer that for inmates. We actually have to license, my department licenses those schools. So the state of Illinois has chosen to provide this opportunity for our correctional inmates. Uh, Early in my time uh, in this job a few years ago, one of our elected officials called me up and said, what's going on here with these barber colleges? I said, can you be a little bit more specific? (laughs) And she said, well, look, we were talking to the students in these schools, and we asked them, are you excited about being able to practice this profession when you're released? And they said, well, we'll never be able to get licensed because we're convicts. And, of course, the problem here is, first of all, that's categorically wrong. Uh, In fact, a criminal conviction rarely prevents you from getting a license in the state of Illinois. Hmm. Under certain circumstances, because of the particular type of criminal history you have, we may put some conditions, at least initially, on your license but it almost never results in a a denial of licensure. It does make the process a little bit more intense. We do look at those applications a little bit more intensely to understand what was going on with that person, and that takes more time. It means you get a couple of pieces of correspondence from us that other applicants won't get, and what we were finding is people just dropped off. They tried. They interpreted the first additional question as an eventual no and it's exactly the opposite but it's perfectly it's perfectly reasonable for someone whose most recent interaction with the state of illinois was as their imprisoner to not think they're really going to get a fair shake so you know we worked with um, our own processes initially we said is there a way that we could make this a little bit easier so we started using the miracle of video hookup and we started (laughs) actually interviewing uh, folks who wanted a barber license who had gone through the school while they were in prison, so that we were actually able to hand them the license as they walked out uh, of prison uh, so that you know that's sort of a success story and then we worked with the the legislature to better uh, you know get better statutory guidance for are there certain types of uh, convictions that just don't have to be disclosed at all, so we don't have to have our team consider them at all. And for the ones that remain, uh, make it abundantly clear that it isn't a barrier to licensure, but is something that we're entitled to consider on a case by case basis. Uh, I think there was another with healthcare providers, Jessica, in Illinois, there was a particularly um, noxious restriction that we worked with the legislature to eliminate.
3: Yeah, for any healthcare provider. Um, A law went into effect, I think, six or seven years ago that forever barred us from licensing anyone who was a registered sex offender, which is still in place in Illinois right now, but also included anyone who had a forcible felony. So this encaptured probably far too many people. And so, and we had licensed practitioners at the time to the day that the law went into effect that we had to permanently revoke their license. So this was someone who had cleared our process before, that we had talked to, that we had deemed was safe to practice for a variety of different reasons, who the day, January 1, no longer could work. And so recently, uh, the General Assembly really pulled back on that, bar, that absolute bar. So now we can treat these individuals as we had previously, have them come in. So we just recently had a gentleman who just has an inspiring story, who grew up in a very, very bad neighborhood in Chicago, uh, was in and out of prison when he was very young, took the opportunity to really reform his life, put himself, got a, a GED, then went through college courses, went on to get a master's. All the time, knowing that he might not ever be able to be a professional licensed counselor. And then when this law went into effect, he was able to utilize that and we were able to give him a license. And he now goes back to those same communities that he grew up in to make sure that he can provide services in those communities. So, you know, when you're looking at criminal convictions in that in that way, you know, it's, I think it's we deny le- under 1% of licenses based strictly on criminal convictions. The
1: costs of licensure bite hardest on more vulnerable populations. If there's significant benefits to be gained, well, the bite's worth it. The juice is worth the squeeze, perhaps. But when it's not clear that it is, you're really harming people who don't need any additional harm. So people who are looking for a second chance after a conviction, people who are in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods, there's a cost to getting a license. You have to go to a school. You have to educate. That costs real money. Well, if you're in an economically disadvantaged neighborhood, that's exactly what you don't have. So we're, we're putting burdens on the people who are least able to meet them without getting any benefit out of it. So that's why we're so fixed on really trying to help the legislature educate itself as to what those purported benefits are uh, because and the cost so that they're making rational decisions.
4: Yeah and, and I just add one other thing is that the states that don't have reforms like that, a lot of these things are actually self-defeating in the sense that one of the better predictors for um, being a repeat offender is joblessness. So um, you know you may actually be increasing crime. Yeah, for the sake of trying to protect people from criminals.
0: Uh, I'm glad you gave us that story, Jessica, the kind of positive, this is how the system can kind of reform itself and and work moving forward. Because as we kind of approach the last few minutes here, I'd like to switch to that, okay, now what do we do with all this information that you guys have given us kind of conversation, right? So as you all mentioned, every state is different. I'm sure Illinois has its own particular regulatory and legal framework around this. Other states the same way. Everyone has their own eccentricities. What can we maybe learn from the Illinois example, or what other positive examples are there out there that other states can follow? So, really, if I'm a state lawmaker listening to this or on their staff, what lesson should I be should I be thinking about? What should I really take away here?
4: Can I start with? Uh, I know you asked for a positive example, but can I start <laughs> with? I'm an economist, so I, it's dismal <laughs> science. Let me start with the way that it typically goes, and it's not an inspiring story. The way it typically goes is a legislator has informed themselves about the um, literature on licensure and is inspired to try to limit or eliminate um, the b- licensing burden. So they sponsor a bill with you know, 30 licenses to get rid of, um, and then they promptly get 30 arrows in their back, not from uh, consumer groups, but from this, the special interests who don't want their licenses taken away. And then in order to get something passed, uh, they start trimming the bill until, you know, something limps over the goal line with maybe getting rid of one license or two. Unfortunately, we've seen that play out over the over the decades, and it's just not a, a I think, a really viable solution anymore. So what I would suggest is we need to think of new different ways to do this, um, perhaps institutional changes. Jessica's can talk a little bit about Sunrise legislation, I think is an interesting uh Option at least for limiting the the expansion of licensure. Another suggestion I would have is, to the extent it could be modeled after other successful reforms, so BRAC commissions, uh, base realignment and closing commissions, kind of dealt with a similar type of problem where um, it was in the general interest to limit military spending on bases, on obsolete bases especially but it was not in the parochial interest of any legislator to support that. So could you design independent commissions? We often think of blue ribbon commissions as a way to kill um, good reforms, yeah. but c- can you create a blue ribbon commission that is charged with trying to limit or reduce the burden of licensure? It's make sure that it uh, is not dominated by members of the licensed profession. Make sure that there are members on the commission that are, know the economics um, make sure that there's people on the commission that whose interest is finding employment for those who are at least well off among us, and then you know ideally either because it's done by executive or perhaps the structure of it, you know the, the legislature doesn't have an ability really to get into the details of it. They sort of defer to the commission. That would be nice. Um, other alternatives are to mandate, as uh, Nebraska recently has, that the state find the least burdensome alternative to achieve the end. So we haven't talked about that too much here, but there's lots and lots of alternatives to licensure. There's certification where you are allowed to practice the profession, whether you have a certification or not. The certification just says that you have met certain standards. There's deceptive practices, laws. There are There's torts. There are, uh, of course, consumer independent third-party reviews, Angie's List. There's Google reviews. Um, there's tons and tons of alternatives. So that's another option. And then the third option I'd suggest uh, we're just now starting, uh, we'll see in the next few years as it plays out, but Arizona uh, recently passed legislation, which essentially reverses the burden of proof. And it says the right to practice a profession is a fundamental civil right. And the state, the burden is on the state to prove that it's in the public's interest to limit people's ability to practice their profession. Um, And it actually gives anyone who believes that they've been harmed by licensure, gives them an ability to bring suit and claim that they have a legal right to uh, test that claim that that they have a legal right to uh, practice a profession. So a lot of these reforms are brand new, and we're not sure really what's going to happen with them. But I'm excited about them because they are totally different than the decades of sort of failed reforms that we've seen.
1: I would uh, agree with all of those, and some of them sound like good examples for us to be working on in <laughs> Illinois. You know, I I think there's certainly there's this fundamental issue of when do you license, when don't you license? Uh, to the extent that there is a license, make sure that the the burdens of the license are as carefully tailored as possible. So, in Illinois, we've had the idea uh, if you're demonstrating that you're a good licensed professional. You don't have any discipline on your record. Uh, You pay your fees on time. Uh, Maybe you're the type of professional that doesn't have to do quite as much continuing education because continuing education has a cost. And the cost appears, I'm not an economist, but the data that I've seen, the cost appears to be disproportionately borne uh, by professions that earn the least amount of money. So we've seen some data for professionals who... Maybe earn in the low $30,000 annually. And to keep their license current, it's $900 to $1,000 every two year renewal period. That's a significant portion of their income. It's unclear to me why any of that has to be spent, but if they've demonstrated their good behavior, couldn't we cut that in half or cut it in a third or cut it by two thirds uh, so that we're at least being a little bit more carefully tailored when we do make a licensor decision?
3: And I just like, in that example in particular, the of the $1,000, 900 of those dollars are continuing education fees. Oh, wow. So $100 is our, as a department, our renewal fee. Um, I think they're all great reform efforts. One thing I would encourage is that every state regulate slightly differently. So I don't really think that there is a one-sized fits-all solution to the problem. I know we've looked very carefully on what makes sense for Illinois. We're structured slightly differently in the sense that we are an umbrella regulatory agency and not all states function in the same way.
0: Well, as I think that list of reform opportunities sort of suggests, we could probably sit here and talk about this for at least another couple of hours. Uh, but at least some of our guests have a plane to catch, and I promise <laughs> that I wouldn't keep them here for the entire day. Uh, and we are just about out of time, so I do want to wrap up. I appreciate you guys sharing your experience with Illinois specifically, Matt. Really appreciate you kind of helping break this down from an economic perspective for for our audience. I want to thank our listeners for joining us today, and as always, I like to leave you all with uh, some place to go after this. You can learn a little bit more. Uh, so I'll just kind of go around the table if you all want to share a website or a project or a Twitter handle, just something you would recommend listeners who are interested in either Illinois' efforts or the issue of occupational licensure more broadly uh, can kind of go and, and learn a little bit more. So I guess uh, Jessica and the secretary, we'll start with you all.
1: Well, we're at our, our acronym is IDFPR. Our website is idfpr.com. com. And I believe that acronym is our handle on Twitter and Facebook and LinkedIn. So you can always find out more about us there. Did I get that right, Jessica?
3: You did. (laughs) Um, One other quick plug. Illinois is also part of an 11-state consortium being sponsored by NCSL um, to look at these issues. So if you want to look up, I think it's the Occupational Licensing Learning Consortium. Um, They have a lot of great resources. And there's 10 other states who have actively started participating. And I know that the group is looking to grow um, relatively soon. And so they have offered a lot of great resources. There's a lot of good information on, on occupational licensing. Thanks. And Matt?
4: I'm on Twitter at MattMitchell80, and uh, you can find more research on this issue and other issues at Mercatus.org.
0: And as always, you can find me on Twitter at ChadMReese or email me at CReese at Mercatus.GMU.edu with any comments, questions, concerns, or episode ideas. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.